Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to season three. As you can already tell, this does not sound as good as it normally does because I've been, well, the issues I've had. I actually had a, <clears throat> so I'm in Georgia right now. I'm at Stone Mountain outside of Atlanta. This cool little park. Uh, look up Stone Mountain and go to images. You'll see what I'm going to see as well as everything in the park here for the next couple of days. For the last week, I've been in Fort Stewart, Georgia. For the last four or five days, I've been trying to do a podcast, but out of nowhere, I mean, I'm sure it was scheduled months or weeks in advance, they were doing rifle ranges, machine gun ranges, night fires. Somebody was in the field doing a coordinated platoon attack of some type because I could hear the guns talking, for those who knows what that means, and there was just no way it was going to happen. It was it was very difficult. So I have not yet been able to sit down and actually get the equipment out and make that happen. That's why I'm giving you this now. And I'm getting more and more messages and people want to hear what I got to say or information I have to share. So I figured, well, no ads, but which is good. Bad sound. Not good. That's what you get to deal with. I was going to do a Ukraine-Russia thing some weeks ago that no longer matters because so much has happened, talking about the potential and the way things are going. And I've seen a lot of people talk about it, and a lot of people probably shouldn't be talking about it, people that aren't uh, really related into intel or strategists or people that are tacticians but not strategists or people that just have really good podcasts or YouTube channels and say prepping, and they give you all this good information, but then they hear Big Bad Russia and nuclear weapons, and they start talking about it essentially trying to prophesy what could happen and not when I see it I think okay you're not I get what you're doing or I think you're fear-mongering one of the two but you don't know what you're saying so we'll hit up some of those questions you probably can hear some background noise a lot of things I normally edit out will probably be in here because I'm just recording this straight on the app so there's no editing to it but I've had quite a few questions some have emailed back people but some I want to hit up I was trying to find specifically who sent it, but one I got sent a while ago, actually I think it was at the end of the year, was wanting to know if I had any speaking engagements. So the answer to that is no. If you know anybody who needs me, I'll I'll definitely do it. Um, I'm not well-known in some circles where people think they would see me. I'm well-known in others. I've done speaking engagements, seminars, and conferences before, mostly in the military. Some with SOCOM, some with regular Army. A lot of them were intel-based training base, training, you know, redoing training programs. I did one with the language. We brought all kinds of people in from SOCOM to talk about language training, and that was really good. We did that in Florida a few years ago. The only one I had was last year. Was it scheduled last spring, I think? Uh, It didn't happen. The event just didn't happen. And I was going to do a few things there that some people are part of with an organization that isn't really functioning much anymore. But I don't actually have anything happening. I do want to hit up some events like that. I definitely want to hit the Overland deal that happens in Flagstaff every year. And it happens somewhere else in the East Coast. I think I'm going to try to make the Flagstaff one. I believe it's in the fall. Whichever one's in the fall is the one I'm going to try to make and hit up some of those things. So if anybody out there knows of any conferences or places you think the stuff I talk about would be welcome or would make sense, whether it's private investigation, law enforcement, military even prepping or or uh, intel based stuff yeah i'll definitely i'll definitely check them out another question i was trying to find was people were asking me i think the same person asked me about a couple of organizations and i don't remember both their names so i can't comment it until i find the question and i'll be able to answer that later on another podcast and tell you what i think about both of those um one's really good one's more like comic-con in my view so the person who asked that had mainly to do with cyber and 
that type of thing, hacking deals. Uh, I'll have some info on that. I got another question about uh, the podcasts I listened to this year, or ones I'll be listening to that people are interested that are along the same lines of what I do on here. One I listen to is called DIA Connections, put out by the Defense Intelligence Agency. It's really well produced. A lot of it's historical stuff. Some of it's modern day stuff on things that happen. They interview all kinds of people from the Defense Intelligence Agency, the military, and the intelligence community over different subjects. If you like the stuff I put out when I talk about, other than say as specific as like body language or specific as deception, but you like the ones where I talk about espionage in the news or perhaps current events, like if you know I'm going to talk about Ukraine or China and Taiwan, you'll like what they have. It's really well done. The other one is CIA Connections. is put on by Mike Morell, former acting director of the CIA. He gets to interview a lot of big people. He has some really great ones recently on Ukraine and some stuff on Taiwan and other ones. And I would tell you that if you see the names of the guests and you know who they are and you don't like them because of their politics, I would ignore that and listen to it anyway because they focus on the subject matter at hand. And I think that you would like that. Now, there's several others I peruse at times, but not that I listen to consistently. I just don't have enough time. But there's a few others out there. So I'll take a look and see uh, which ones I'm looking at listening to over the next month or two of travel and give you some feedback on that and let you know where I am, which ones I like, and what I do with them. Uh, Another one is from Mitch. He wanted to know about a podcast on steps or precautions before traveling overseas. He can't find it. I actually have one called Safety and Security When Traveling Abroad or Safety and Security When Traveling Overseas. It's probably as far back as late in season one. And that's the one I think specifically answers your question. I also have the one uh, in the middle of last year about emergencies while traveling abroad. Some of the things to be prepared for that I dealt with that morning when I made the recording with a friend of mine in Uganda when some uh, ISIS affiliates got past the Congo and started attacking places in Uganda while she was there and she was leaving that day. But the first one, I think, is what you're looking for. Another question I had is an individual, Michigan, says, I often carry a handgun in a level two retention inside my MERS. A MERS is a man purse. Now, not having a picture of this, this could be a lot of things. It could be a single sling backpack type. It could be a messenger bag. It could be an actual purse. But something along those lines is what he's carrying a handgun inside of. He said, I am curious if there was a rapidly developing situation, what would happen if one discharged a weapon still in the holster through the MERS, ignoring the impact on aim targeting? Um, Well, there's several things to look at. First is make sure your holster isn't completely enclosed in the bottom. And that the bullet can actually leave without hitting any of the holster. Next thing is to... What I would do is go to a range where you'd be allowed to do it. And I would actually... If you're willing to take the possible loss of a holster, assuming that the barrel is down far enough in the holster and clear of any obstruction that a bullet could leave safely to actually see if you can function and fire that weapon while it's in the holster. Because if you can't do that, your question's already answered. The answer's going to be nothing. The next thing to do is, even though you mention ignoring impact on aim and targeting, I I would suggest that's probably because if you had to do it in that situation, you were very close to somebody, so 
you know, specific aiming for front and rear sight, probably not the issue. They're right on you. So, um, you, you know, you're probably going to hit them and you're not worried about the impact on the target. But let's talk about everything in between. First thing we want to look at is the type of bag you have, how much other things you carry in it. And this is good for anybody that's carrying a handgun or firearm in any type of bag that they think they might need to put their hand in the bag and operate the weapon without removing it from the bag if that situation happened. One thing is, what else is in there? Are those items secured? Are they have little pockets they're in? Do you have a lot of loose free items? Because if you have loose free items that move around, or more importantly, let's say it's a sling or a messenger bag, with a safe, unloaded, and cleared weapon, you should put everything in your bag and practice angrily and violently, meaning trying to replicate the possible struggle situation or the effects your bodies would have from adrenaline and see how much stuff moves around. Reason being, assuming the weapon can fire, if it can hit those objects, you can run into all kinds of issues. And it doesn't matter what they are. One of the things are like there's women that have diaper bags. And inside diaper bags, we have cloth material, diapers, baby wipes. Even though it's a soft material, it could be enough to stop that bullet if it gets in the way. It's possible that you could get debris, even small pieces of paper, potato chips, whatever, that get in the bag, get around, and get in the barrel of the gun. So we want to be careful about that. Now let's say you've got that handgun in a holster in a specific, say, pocket of the bag that you're not able to remove and nothing else is in there. Well, that's good. But depending on how the bag's positioned when you violently move it around and what's happening in that situation, you still might fire through multiple layers of that bag and other objects. So my suggestion would be to check that out, see what's in there, make sure things aren't loose, and make sure you have minimal items in there. If you're carrying a lot of stuff, you're going to run into issues. Now, that being said, I know a guy who had a very somewhat similar situation with a negligent discharge just to explain what can happen if you hit an object in there, even, say, an ink pen. One strong possibility is that you're going to get injured, maybe even a wound that may not even be a bullet fragment. I went to a training where people were using pistols on a pistol range that I was not running. And... I wasn't entirely happy with it. I probably should have said something. In retrospect, obviously I should have, but I didn't. Now, in this training, while they're doing pistol drills, there was a lot of things that contributed, even though it was a negligent discharge, a lot of things contributed to not being able to stop this. One is the range safeties were rotating in and out of the training. So there wasn't always the same safeties, and they weren't doing very good at paying attention to what they are doing. So that was a problem. Another issue is that... It was a little cold out. So the individual in question had a, a drop leg holster and he was wearing gloves during his training. He'd never even attempted to operate the firearm with gloves before, let alone try to draw and fire. So the instance, the, the situation happened is his glove finger became a little bit loose on the trigger finger area. As he's trying to put the holster in, the glove got in the way, he couldn't quite try to see it. And as he tries to jam it in there, which was the first mistake, there was enough material in there that the weapon went off. Now, being a drop leg holster, it was off to the side of his body, but he was a bigger dude. He had muscular built, larger guy. The bullet exited the firearm, passed his holster, and went into the cargo pocket of his pants where he had a small GPS device. That GPS device exploded. Part of that G device went through the pants to the top of his calf and came out the bottom of the calf and he had what looked like a bullet wound. But we knew it wasn't a bullet wound, unless it was a bullet fragment, although they think they determined it was a piece of the GPS because he was shooting a 45 ACP, which is pretty fat for those who don't know what it is. Definitely wasn't that. So we had to evac him out of there and get him to the hospital. Now, he was fine. It wasn't life-threatening. None of this happened. 
but it's to articulate the fact that if you have a firearm inside of anything like a bag and you have a lot of extra things in there, things moving around or not enough flexibility in the bag and you have to twist the gun around a certain way, if it hits an object, that object could explode, that the bullet or piece of the bullet could injure you, it could exit the bag and not hit your target, it could exit the bag and hit somebody else or cause other damage. And it doesn't have to be an object in your bag. Depending on the bullet you're using, whether or not they're self-defense rounds, the material of that bag, it could hit a metal rivet and ricochet or explode. It could hit too many layers of sewn seam. If, say, it's canvas or thick nylon, there's a lot of things to consider. So one thing you can do, if you feel safe in doing so, I don't necessarily recommend this, but let's say you're willing to try it, is once you know, if you're willing to try firing the weapon, make sure it works with holster, then put it in the bag, assuming you can afford a second bag, and you can try firing through that bag a few times to see what that bolt's going to do. I will tell you that's not the safest thing in the world, but if you're in a controlled environment, it can be somewhat safe. There is danger involved in that, and you need to be prepared for it. But it's never a good idea when it comes to dangerous objects like firearms, because they're dangerous when not held properly, or dangerous when not trained with properly, to, based on theory and question alone, choose to possibly put yourself in a situation to use it in a way which you've never done training is what matters and you have to train with your gear in order to do that now that being said give you an update of what i've been doing i told everybody that i started out in washington i did some training up there i went down to arizona met some folks that i used to train with made some plan for future training there went to texas where I was in Texas for about a week, meeting with some people that I'm going back to provide some firearms training to um, in about four weeks, roughly, on my calendar in front of me. But I'll be near Amarillo, Texas, and I'll keep you updated on that. I'll be doing some firearms training. Then I left there, and I was headed to Arkansas, but due to a schedule change on the other end, that's why I'm going back now. Uh, I was in Oklahoma visiting a friend in between there for a few days. Arkansas. Then I came to Georgia. Came to Georgia to do two of my interviews because I have some interviews lined up. Uh, the first two interviews haven't happened. One will probably happen in the fall when I meet this guy in Idaho. He's a friend of mine I've known for well over 20 years. He's the individual I mentioned before. Me and David were going to interview who's a chemist and a Seaburn specialist. And we're going to talk about all things chemical, biological weapons, COVID, even a little bit about that, and a few other things, talks in military and intel stuff. He did some times with special forces uh, supporting them. He's got a lot of stuff to say. And we'll probably tell some stories, and it'll probably be at least a two-parter. The other one was with an intel analyst, used to be one of my students. She was put on temporary call, possibly deployed to Eastern Europe for this current situation. It was put on hold, but do some issues that had nothing to do with her it couldn't work out or that's the podcast I actually would have published yesterday because I actually would have been able to do it because there wouldn't have, the time frame I would have done it in, there was no rifle ranges. So unfortunately that didn't happen either. So I'm in Georgia right now. I was at Fort Stewart, Georgia. I'm in Stone Mountain, Georgia, outside of Atlanta. I'm leaving here on Sunday. From here, I'm going to go to Arkansas near Little Rock in a small town. I'll be there for at least a week. If we're able to do the training, I'll be there for up to two weeks near the Little Rock area. So you can check show notes and reach out to me if you're in the area and are interested in doing some training or meeting up. I'll definitely be there. Once I leave Arkansas in either one or two weeks after Sunday, 
I'll keep you updated. I'll be heading to Oklahoma for a weekend camping trip with some friends. And then I'll be in Wichita, Kansas, in that area, for at least a week. I'll be seeing Dave David from DMR Publications. We'll do a joint show or interview or something like that. We're going to hang out, drink some beers, do some camping, have some fun. Um, he's, he's on the final stage of getting that paper so he can defend it for his doctorate. And we think it'd be fun if uh, all the fans of ours that like to watch YouTube will see us together. And we'll probably do, maybe we'll do an interview format of one or both podcasts. Not sure yet. Uh, we'll figure it out when we get there. Uh, once I leave there... I'll head back to Texas for training. I'll be there for a couple of days probably, uh, maybe a little longer. And then, and that's where the schedule starts to get loose because now we're getting into mid-April. From there, I'll head back to Arizona. I'll be in Arizona to handle some business. I'm not sure how long I'll be there for. There's some personal stuff with family that may probably isn't going to happen but could affect the rest of the trip if it doesn't happen. I'm going to go up through there, through Utah, I'm going to hit some of the national parks on my way back in to uh, Yellowstone, Zion. Um, uh, from there, I'm going to go to um, yeah, Yellowstone, Zion, Zion, oh, Grand Canyon, Zion, Yellowstone, in that order. I'm going to head back to Seattle by the beginning of May. I'll be in the Seattle area for about a month. And then around June-ish, June 1st, a couple weeks of June, hopefully I'll be headed out to Boise, Idaho. We're meeting another guy I used to train with. I'll be there for a few days, and then I'm going to be traveling on an undetermined schedule between Idaho, Montana, Utah, Wyoming, and then coming close to Labor Day, I'll either be heading to uh, Arizona for some training, or I'll be heading to Oklahoma for a week-long camping trip with some friends. So it gives you something to look and plan for. There are several people who have messaged me. Uh, you know, I've, I've tried reaching out to some of them, people in Pennsylvania, somebody in Ma or Delaware, I think Maine. Some other people in Georgia. I haven't heard back from any of you. If you're still on there, I'm still around. I'm still definitely ready to do this. Um, so you can work with uh, those ideas and figure out exactly what you think is best or doable. And I'll definitely meet up with you. I'm just doing this to give people knowledge and information at minimal to no cost, depending on what it is. Um, there's only a few things I'm charging for, like that security company, for example. And there's uh, things where costs may be involved, but they won't be like necessarily going to me if we need to get a facility or whatever we need to do. I'm basically putting the work on your end. I'm the one traveling, trying to keep the costs down to give people opportunities to get knowledge and, and try to work that out. I've had a couple people reach out map reading, haven't heard back. A couple people reach out about um, OSINT information and open source research. I'd love to hear back from you, see if we can schedule that and work it out. Um, so, you know, just reach out to me and we can see what we're doing. Now, on to the Russia-Ukraine situation. I do have a podcast I want to do, I would have recorded, that I would have had to get out yesterday to even be relevant. Because things are changing so much. But to give an overview on a few things to put in perspective, I'm going to do a whole Russia-Ukraine intel perspective, just like I did China-Taiwan. But I want to put a few things in perspective now. One of the things I've said for a long time, and some people have disagreed with, as I've said, militarily in a conventional sense, I don't see Russia as quite the threat people do. I see China's conventional as a bigger threat. 
part of the reasons that I didn't talk about is I didn't know what much information was out there. But one of the things that's been known for a long time that we can now see on the news is things like logistic support, old aged equipment, lack of training in their soldiers. Things that are being reported through official intel channels that will eventually become public if they're not already are things like there are Russian soldiers that are sabotaging their own equipment so that they can't go anywhere or so that they can't fight and then walking away and leaving them going off to wherever. Which is very interesting if you think about Russia. I mean, Gulag, Siberia, Putin will still kill people if he needs to. He's still one of the few people that has had people assassinated. Not the only one, but there's very few that do that anymore. And these soldiers don't really seem to fear the repercussions, which is interesting when you compare it to how we view Russia. I saw an interesting tweet, a military officer, talked about all these times, war games, exercises, where they're planning operations against Russia and how to defeat them, especially if they invaded Ukraine or Eastern Europe or back before Crimea happened, or if they went to some of the former Soviet states in the southeast. And the joke basically was, all I need is a pickup truck you know, and to shut the gas stations down because we see people towing away tanks or trucks or something like that. So there's interesting aspects to that. Some people say, well, we don't want to get in a war with Russia. My question is always why, but they usually say, well, you know, because of nuclear war. It's a big leap to just say nuclear weapons are going to happen. First, we got to look at them in context. They are another type of weapon system. Yes, they're dangerous. Yes, they're ICBMs or massively destructive. Tactical nukes are more likely. They're bad. The word nuclear is bad and instills fear everywhere. But that's not the thing. Looking at what we're seeing now supports the idea I would have put out a month ago if I was able to do a podcast where I said the statement isn't that we don't want to get in a war with Russia. First of all, we don't want to get in a war with anybody. No matter what you think about wars making money, they make money. But we don't want to do that. We want to do other things first to avoid that because of all the death and damage and the money costs. The better statement is Russia doesn't want to get in a war with us. There's reasons why, I used to always say, when Russia was in Syria, they'd make their allies do things differently because they knew if they didn't do things differently, it would piss us off and we would just obliterate them. They knew that. So that's something to keep in mind, I think, puts a better perspective on it now. The other thing about, saying nuclear war is if we look at levels of aggression and things that were going on, despite what I just briefly saw that I haven't looked in today, looks like, and you'll probably know by the time you hear this, there's going to be a lot of bombardments or something in Kiev around that area, which caused more civilian casualties. The interesting thing, though, is up to this point, we didn't see, assuming, not knowing what that headline meant, because I didn't read it yet, Prior to that happening, however that plays out, we didn't see indiscriminate killing of civilians. We saw civilians cussing out soldiers. Civilians making jokes at soldiers, like the one who made the joke about, hey, what's wrong? And they're like, oh, our tank ran on the gas. He's like, hey, you want me to tow you back to China? They're willing to do things like that. They're willing to yell at them or make jokes with them because they don't fear soldiers are just going to start killing them. Because a lot of people don't realize the war has been going on for several years. There's been Russian troops, some of them in certain areas, especially around Donbass, for years. And when I do that show on it, I'll talk about the historical things that lead up to why they're doing this, what's going on, and all the things about it. Because one of the things I've always said, wars are fought for two reasons, lands or people. And whatever one we say, it's typically the other one. This war sounds a lot like land. 
they want land. There's the border situation. There's the defensive perimeter between them and Eastern Europe and NATO. You know, there's oil issues and other issues with exports. That all sounds good, but this is actually a people issue war, which I will explain. So now looking at all that, most likely the escalation events is something like it looks like we might be seeing now where we're using artillery, more airstrikes, bombardments of infrastructure that will cause civilian deaths. After that, we look at other possibilities. The next most likely escalation, if it was to happen, is what you would do is you wouldn't use nukes or tactical nukes. You would use, probably Russia would use chemical weapons. We'd most likely next step in escalation. After that, we start looking at the possible tactical nuke situation. Now, knowing this, looking at everything we did first, well, I'll cover this in more detail later. If we look at sanctions, everybody's playing down sanctions. Well, first and foremost, there's a lot of countries doing sanctions, not just the U.S. And if you look more into it and what central banks are doing and other countries around the world and how it's hurting them, it's not a slap on the wrist. Things like Crimea, that was a slap on the wrist. Other places they've invaded and things they've done in the last 20 years, that what we did were slaps on the wrist. These are a little bit more severe. Could they be better? Of course they could. But you have to remember why people say that, well, America should do this. We could say that. America may want to do that. But NATO, this is a NATO thing. NATO operates on 100% unanimous vote to make decisions. So the decision was to go this route instead of anything else and then to implement them gradually in order to cause him to stop doing what he's doing. Why would they do this? Well, we've seen sanctions have effect. We've seen them have significant effect, but not total effect in places like Iran. We've seen them have effect in Iraq. We've seen them in other countries. The world has seen this, so it would make sense to do that. Another thing, we just got out of 20 years of fighting. Despite the loss of life, billions upon billions of dollars spent. We just brought everybody back home. Other countries were in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria too, as well as other nations. There's other fighting going around the world, so it's expensive. The other thing that happens, if we get involved now or prior to, and it's America or NATO fighting Russia, a lot of people say things that sound good, like helping Ukraine, saving Ukraine, saving their people. They're forgetting something. If anybody gets involved in Ukraine, one thing we know is right now, there's a war going on. We know Russians are dying. We know Ukrainians are dying. We know that for sure. It's a mistake to think that if a military force shows up in defense of Ukraine, that there'll be less people dead. There won't be. There'll be more death. Governments think of things politically and fiscally. Money and life. They don't want more people dead. That always looks bad. That never sells. And... If you think about the pandemic for the last two years, the effects it's had on economies, trade, and situations around the world, not only can nobody really ever afford to go in a war, we definitely can't do now, so they don't want to do that. So they want this route. Now, why we can all play arm chair quarterback and say, well, Trump would have done it differently, a different president would have done it differently, maybe. Maybe that would have happened. We don't know for sure. And it's also a NATO issue. But there is one possibility that could have went better. One thing that I think was forgotten is when we look at countries and these different effects is we forget to think about the person leading them. It's very easy in our country because as a republic following a somewhat democratic process, we have a life of elected leaders at all levels. Now, while they say Putin's elected, 
communist type countries, socialist countries, whether it's a legitimate election or not, that's not how well things really work there. We're thinking sometimes, I think, more about what would hurt us. And let's do that. But they forgot that Putin is, he's like an arm wrestler in a biker bar. Right? He wants competition. He wants challenge. He's not just going to take on the weakest guy all the time. He will if he thinks he's going to get away with it, which is clearly what happened in this case. He's kind of like a bully. And what happens when you stand up to bullies? Even if you get your ass kicked, they usually stop. What I mean by that is the only thing we probably could have done that would have made sense is instead of gradually implementing sanctions, and don't get me wrong, I don't think sanctions are bad. I think we should have done exactly what we're doing sanctions, probably in the timeline we're following. But I think the only thing that could have happened is there was about 150,000 Russian troops surrounding three sides of Ukraine before the war kicked off. And some of you may not realize that number got that high. You might remember when they talked about 70,000, but many of you remember reading the news when it hit 20,000 to the point that international observers, by law, are supposed to be present for any training event. That didn't happen. The best option we would have had was a show of force, which would have been matching troop for troop. Now think about that, step one. We want to put 20,000 people there. Twenty. He eventually had 150. The cost alone, how people view that. Now what would have happened if we'd have put 20,000, 150,000 troops, and we're exactly where we're all now, and they're there and they're doing nothing? People would still say the president screwed up, or they'd say NATO screwed up. That's why I don't think they care much about what people think in some areas like that. Because if you don't like a person, you're not going to like what they do, period. But if we'd have done that and were able to keep plussing up troops and plussing up troops, it would have cost a boatload. But then if we also would have added air assets and did patrols over Ukraine, creating no-fly zones. When he saw that, my guess is he wouldn't have moved forward. So that's the only thing I think that could have happened differently. I don't know that that would have worked out, but we didn't go that route. So now we have to consider other options. Assuming that headline I saw, the article I didn't read, plays out that way, and they are bombarding and starting to kill things, kill more people, destroy infrastructure, we're probably going to see some sort of military action take place, but I don't know what kind. The problem is, if you look at Ukraine on a map, it's much more wider than it is tall. If you look at how it goes, if we went into Eastern Europe even earlier to set up a perimeter there, which we would never have done, we're surrounded on three sides by those troops. We would not have done that. They are mainly focused on Eastern Europe, which I'll get into reasons why in a future progress. They don't want to get all the way to Western Ukraine and be in NATO's area or close to them. I'll explain it further in future podcasts, but more than likely, I think they're going to split the country in half, and I think that's been the plan all along, and there's logical reasons why that makes sense. So going into it forward, what are we going to do? No idea. I really don't know. I think... The most likely thing to happen next will be some sort of no-fly zone. The problem is, not that it's a problem, but if we do no-fly zones, then we have to consider, well, if they say have artillery assets blowing up a city, we're not letting them fly, but are we going to destroy those assets? Because the second we pull that trigger, no matter how anybody swings it, we're at war with Russia. The problem is, just like they slowly built up troops, slowly did things, and told their stories to the public, we slowly did sanctions and told all our stories to the public. It's a very slow staircase of escalation. Because we didn't meet them with full force to their force right on, we're in a slow-growing situation that could be over quickly or could go a long time. 
And at some point, NATO's going to have to decide whether or not they really want to show up in force. Or the United States, because of its power, is going to have to tell NATO, screw it, we're going to do something about it. And I think those are the things we're going to be looking for in the future. But the end result is this. Nobody wants the war because it costs a lot of money and costs a lot of lives. So we'll have to see how that plays out and where we're going to go from there. So in future episodes, you can look for the Russia-Ukraine intel perspective and the entire history going back to before 1,000 years, around the year 900, coming forward to modern times and all the things that's happened around there and why Ukraine and Russia and who does what. You'll even learn about how Russia actually used to be part of Ukraine, kind of in a way, and figure out exactly what their interests are and why they're there and also talk about that episode or another, the possible outcomes, the effects this will have on European countries, future effects this will have in the world, no matter how it plays out, why they're really there, what they're probably going to do, and how it's going to move forward. I do have a voice message from back in January I haven't answered yet, so for you who left it, I will be doing one on Havana Syndrome and discussing that, what information we have on that, what it possibly looks like, what it could possibly be. That might be something interesting to you. And I, of course, have future episodes coming up on some of our favorite topics that I've done many times over, like situational awareness, body language, everyday carry, detecting deception, possibly even some prepping stuff. So I'll definitely do that. So hit me up through my contact info. Let me know what stuff you want to hear about. Send me your questions. I am definitely...